You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. What we have been doing over the last few weeks is introducing you to some of the new people with surprise announcements that are joining Metal Ark Media. This one today is of no surprise because Amin Al-Hassan moved us all when he decided to rip up his contract and just join the pirate ship. No questions asked, giving up all leverage. I just ride with you guys and I wanted the audience to get to know a little more about Amin's story and how Amin came to be in our lives because I know that Jorge Sedano told me a long time ago, hey, Amin Alhassan, this is a guy you'll like. This is a guy that you need to make a part of your orbit. And then the first time Amin came down, he told me back then, he said, just please, I love the environment. I love that you guys fool around, that it's not too rigid and anything you ever need from me. Please make sure that you consider me to be a part of your world. So, I know that's how you may have gotten introduced to Amin through our show, but I want to introduce you to Amin, how he got to this country, his story that goes back to its roots. So let's go back to the beginning and congratulations. We are thrilled. It's meaningful to us that you made the move that you made and we've always enjoyed your company. We've enjoyed that you're willing to make yourself the butt of the joke for the betterment of the show. It's something that we value about you around here and obviously your basketball analysis, but as it relates specifically to your story, what got you to this country? Oh, um, well, my father was a diplomat. He was a civil servant. He was working in the Sudanese Foreign Ministry, which is basically our State Department. And uh, he was sent on assignment to the uh, UN mission in New York. And so we moved to New York. I was four months old at the time. I was born in Sudan. And we were supposed to be there. I think the rotation was supposed to be four or five years. Uh, and then while we were in New York, my sister was born and she was born with congenital heart disease and she needed a lot of uh, open heart surgery and, you know, follow up procedures and all that. And so what was supposed to be a few years ended up being eight years. Uh, and then at age eight, we felt like she was healthy enough and we were ready. And so we moved back to Sudan. And so I don't speak a word of Arabic. Uh, I, I don't I, I know very little about the culture outside of what I experienced in my house. And so uh, I'm eight years old. I don't speak the language. I, it's, I'm as outsider as outsider gets. And two years in, the country goes to a coup. And a uh, new kind of uh, military government takes over. And they start to lean into kind of a lot of theocracy. And conditions get worse and get worse and get worse until in 1994, my dad finally finds a job at the UN because, you know, this whole time he's been waiting, working in the foreign ministry and he gets a job and then he quits basically. And he moves back here to New York. And that's how I came back. I was 14 years old at the time. And now I'm coming back to America, but I was, everything was an outsider again because it's, I'm not used to the weather and I'm not used to, 
culture, people, or all those things, everything that I knew was frozen from when I was, you know, eight or nine years old. And now I had to catch up on everything. But I didn't have an accent. So that that led to a lot of misunderstandings because I didn't know any better, but people didn't know that I didn't know any better. I always say I wish I had an accent when I came back because people would have given me, I think, an easier time. You know, well, what was, was happening? Well, I mean, I was just getting fights at school. Um fights over things over again they were at the end of this misunderstandings i mean some of it's just kids are assholes but i feel like a lot of it was just people didn't understand they thought i was you were miscommunicating yeah they thought i was being kind of disrespectful or whatever and i literally just didn't know any better because there was a whole chunk of pop culture and everything that i just missed out on i was not privy to everything for me was frozen in time and so there was a lot of that, a lot of just frictions that I had to go through. Uh, and then, uh, and, before, and then you're also in high school and there are hormones and all, you know, everything is kind of coming at the same time. But all of that shapes your sort of rebellious streak. Does it not? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. You know, I, you know, a lot of it, obviously it comes from, you know, when you live in a country that goes from democracy to the lacks of freedoms that we had, it, it, makes you look at things differently and it makes you definitely kind of bristle at authority and bristle at being told what to do and, and, and all those things, because it's a reminder, right? It's a constant reminder that the slippery slope of just letting people slide with stuff will eventually land you in a place where you don't have any freedoms at all. And so I think that's part of it. And then part of it, I, I'm, I am an asshole. I mean, <laughs> well, what would you explain to people about eight through 14? What was that like being there from eight years old to 14 and specifically arriving, not knowing the language right. because good God, does that make you an outsider? Yeah. I mean, it's just a culture clash because you know, you go from turn on the TV and there's a bunch of channels on and power's on all the time. And you know, things that you take for granted, freedom, Running water, right? I mean, like it's no, it's not, it, even beyond free. Just little things like running water, um, the ability to buy what you want whenever you want it, if you know, if you have the money, and then going somewhere where it's like, we're buying sugar on a ration card, buying eggs on a ration card. The first time I ever learned the word curfew wasn't my parents saying you got to be home by this time. It's a literal curfew where you're out past this time, you will be shot. There's no questions. Why were you out? That's the only question. You know, why were you out? You shouldn't have been out. So that stuff. Um, and then as you get older and, and things are happening, then the civil liberty stuff started to come in. So I lived across the street, cat a corner from my house that everybody knew was they called a ghost house. Right. Ghost house is where they take political dissidents and they torture them. And so in Sudan, the way houses are built, it's like you got a house and then there's like a, a wall around your house, you know, usually about six feet high, maybe a little higher, depending on how wealthy you are, or whatever. But within your wall, you got this courtyard and people sleep outdoors because it's so hot and electricity is sparing. Sometimes it's on, sometimes it's not, but you can't just have an AC on. So the, the trick is you pull your beds outside and you put the mattresses outside and we sleep under the stars and then sun up, everybody goes back inside. But that means I can hear everything that's happening over there and I know what's going on. And 
the crazy thing I think about is, oh, like, oh, was I, tra- I wasn't traumatized because I was like, yeah, that's kind of what happens. You just accept that's life. There's so many things that we just accepted. Well, that's just how it is. And those are the things that when I think about being in Sudan and coming back here, I think about stuff like that because I think I've told you this story. The first, when we first came back to New York, I'm 14 years old. We're going through the airport and uh, the passport control guys are talking to each other. Talking about, did you get your, your tax refund yet? And the other guy says, no, Uncle Billy got me this year. So he took, he, he kept it for me. And it took me a second to realize, oh, he means Bill Clinton. And then shock and fear because I was looking for the secret police to come in and take this man away because he was talking about the president in the airport of all places. Like the airport in Sudan is like, yeah, that's mole central. You don't say nothing in there because they're everywhere. So I literally thought that this man was going to get dragged away and like tortured or beaten or whatever for speaking ill of the Supreme leader or whatever. And it took me a while to be like, Oh no, that's not, they can say things even as government employees, they can say things and there will be no repercussion. When you say there are a lot of things like that, sleeping outside, mm-hmm. going back indoors, torture house across the street, like what? You said, what else? What else that would illustrate to people the dangerous life, how dangerous your life was there as things got worse? Was, well, I mean, it's funny because I, I never felt like it was dangerous, but in retrospect, like that's not normal. So I remember going to go meet friends somewhere. This is when I was a teenager and wanting to take a shortcut and the shortcut apparently had barbed wire, but I didn't know. So I got caught in the barbed wire. And as, as I'm trying to extricate myself, a soldier comes out and points an AK-47. Like I'm looking right down the barrel. And the guy didn't speak Arabic, which was weird. So I, I was trying to figure out, I'm like, I'm just lost, da-da-da. And the guy, he's not having it. And then another guy comes and translates for him. He's like, no, he's fine. And they tell me to get the hell out of there. It's just weird. Like there were streets where they're just roving gangs of dogs. It's wild dogs. You just you can't go down that street because you get attacked. So you just have to walk the long way. Um, and then, you know, obviously the specter of always the secret police and, and these people, if you say anything, you know, when you leave the house, don't be talking loud, don't be, you know, because you don't want to draw attention to yourself. Um, it, it's just, but like all of these things, I say that I don't, I'm not trying to paint a scary picture because I wasn't scared. It was just kind of like, you know, like someone telling you, hey, don't cross the street in the middle, use a crosswalk. Okay, also, place across the street there, they, they kidnap people. Oh, all right. Like, just kind of matter of fact. So you end up in the United States and you feel safer? You feel what as you're now in your teen years growing into adulthood in the United States? So my first few months, I hated it because I was so cold. I couldn't understand how the sun could be out and... Sunny, no clouds, but I'm cold. And I said, it was, sun's like a lamp. It's not even the sun. I missed routine things. So like in Sudan, we have the mosque. The mosque do the call to prayer five times a day. I missed that. Um, it's not that I was deeply religious. It was just, it was the routine of it. I remember being overwhelmed by going to school where I didn't have to wear a uniform. What do you mean? I got to find something new to wear every day. Um, and I ended up like basically I had like three pairs of pants. I want to say that I just kept rotating because I just didn't know anybody. I was like, okay, black pants, khaki pants, pair of jeans. And that's it. And to this day, I think I have like five pairs of pants. I don't have a lot because 
I just it just makes me kind of overwhelmed. And then after a while, you you start to acclimate, and I think that helped. By the by, the end of my senior year in high school, I, I thought I was pretty comfortable uh, being in New York. And then a blizzard hit, and I was like, "Nope, not doing this one." And I decided I'm going to school somewhere warm. And how does basketball come into your life? So uh, I played basketball in Sudan, uh, but obviously, you know, probably not good. And then when I came to New York, one of the things I would do all the time was I play basketball at the playground because there are hoops everywhere in New York. Because I think it's unique like that. Not, there's no other city in the world I think where you can just walk in every five blocks. There's a basketball court. Um, so there was one I used to play all the time there, and and then in high school played a little bit there and JV or whatever on, on the team and. Definitely, this is around the time the Knicks were good, so it's like you're re- really into it, right? And then I remember probably around 90, 90, yeah, 97 or so. That's when I started taking it a little bit more seriously. Obviously, I knew I wasn't a player, so... Why, though? What was happening? Like, just studying it? Or, like, I'm drawn to this as a career? What no, was happening in 97? Not, not as a career. Just a higher level of interest. And it's hard for people to understand now... Because we have the internet and it's like, oh, I can look up this. And even the way it's reported, right? When we talk about contracts and everyone knows how much money so-and-so made. But like in the 90s, you might hear someone sign a big deal. But then five months later, if you say, hey, how much does so-and-so make? No one would know. There was just wasn't any resources about that. And the conversation wasn't really about that. When the lockout happened, I remember, this is a funny thing. I remember the big conversation point in the 98 lockout was, it's a lockout, not a strike. Because people kept saying it's a player strike. They're like, players aren't striking. They want to show up. It's the owners who have locked the doors. So these were all concepts that I was, I'm into. I'm I'm reading it. I, I remember someone asking me, Alan Houston's injury, like, why hasn't he back yet? I said, well, I said, because it's a wrist injury. If, if he had the same type of injury in his ankle, he'd still be walking with a limp. So that's how far away he's from. And someone else was like, how do you know that? I'm like, I just read. I read. and So I, you were super interested. You were unusually yeah. interested in, yeah. in the minutiae, in the data. You were Because you were what you were doing in the Phoenix front office was trying to stay ahead of the game, ahead of the quantification of the game. Right. It's pretty funny considering the idea that back then uh, you were sort of, you probably could have seen what basketball would be would become maybe in some way, but back then it was still, you guys were part of the revolution that caused, Hey, we need to shoot more threes. We need to do less in the post, but you're doing that with Shaq. Yeah. So it it, like, it's different. So in my early stages, I didn't know anything about analytics. I just information. I was all about information and contracts was something I was interested in. And we get out of that lockout. And now we have this new collective bargaining agreement that's changing the way there's a maximum amount of money guys can make and all these things. So I'm now really, really into it. And I get a copy of the CBA. Can't remember where I got it from, but I got a copy. But what's your schooling at this point? Oh, like I, you're not you're not oh, no. studying basketball. No. You're just curious. I'm just curious. At this point, I'm I, I go to Georgia Tech because I want to go somewhere warm. This is how ignorant I was. I was like, Atlanta's in the South. It's warm. Stephon Marbury went there. Okay. And that's it. That I literally didn't know anything else about Georgia Tech other than it's in Atlanta. Atlanta's warm. 
and Stephon Marbury went there. So Do how? you start fitting yet, though? Because you keep going from these worlds yeah. where you're bouncing in and out. Like, where did you, where, I don't know whether basketball was one of the first places where you felt like you could fit, but I don't imagine Georgia Tech is necessarily. No, I mean, I, I think, well, see, moving to Atlanta was hard because it was a different, so I got used to New York. I got used to everything in New York. And then you, you think, because I don't travel, live in New York. Traveling was going to New Jersey. And then you go somewhere else and you realize, oh, no, this isn't America. Like um, New York isn't America. It's its own country. And America is something different. So, for instance, didn't have a driver's license. Why do I need to drive? Subways everywhere. Buses. If, and if I'm in a pinch, I'll get a cab. And you go to Atlanta and say, okay, so you look at their subway map and it's a cross. Up and down, left and right. That's it. That's it, right? So everyone's driving at 16. Got their own car at 16. I'm like, how is this possible? How do you afford it? Like a car. My family didn't have a car, right? We didn't have TV in my house. So trying to keep, like, people were talking about Melrose Place back then. And I was like, I don't know what that is. So what was important in your house? Uh, Academics, definitely. Pretty much just academics. Like sports was something that, yeah, you're doing it, but whatever. Just don't let it get in the way of your study. But no television makes for a pretty Spartan existence. Yeah, I have to listen to Nick Games on the radio. So you're listening to Nick Games on the radio, yeah. and is is hip-hop, is music making much of music, an existence ab- in Absolutely, life? absolutely. Music plays a big role. Uh, it's the only thing that was current that I was getting back in Sudan. And it was introducing you, right? There would be connection points, I yes. would suppose, with, with kids, with everything. Music would be... Not unlike sports, something that would lubricate the path toward connection. Yes, yes. So, but even then, it's just kind of like you're not, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard because you're not as detail-driven as everyone else is because when you're in New York particularly, new music is something that, you know, through mixtapes was something that people were into, right? And the idea that you just listen to the radio, like, really? No, that's not enough. You got to be... Listen to the new DJ Clue mixtape, and they, he has this unreleased track here from this. Like, and I, I just these were, this was something that I wasn't privy to at the time. Um, and so then, you really followed your curiosities, huh? Like you just yeah. really followed them. No, I mean, and it just, but without any, I won't even say an intention, any even a glimmer of an idea that this is something you can do. You can do this. I'll give you a great example. I uh, for Sudanese households, it's. Three professions you can do. You want to be a doctor, you want to be an engineer, you want to be an architect. One of those three, right? Even lawyers kind of like, really? Because that's just talking. No, no, no. You got you to gotta be, you got to have something that- You have failed your people. Oh, right? my you God. Have... <laughs> oh, my parents. Oh, my parents. I put them through hell because I, I wanted to be a lawyer. And my dad was like- That was frowned upon. Like that yeah. was, that was, it's got to be better than even that. My dad said anyone can be a lawyer. You can always go back and be a lawyer later, but you need something with a technical base so that like you'll always have a job. So what explain to me the rigidities of the academics in your household? Like how how disciplined was it? Discipline. I mean, I I got good grades, so like it it wasn't ever a case of like you got to get your grades up. It was more a case of stop messing around and and particularly learning Arabic. That was my big weakness. But you wanted to mess around. All you wanted to do was mess around. Yeah. So you're you're a creative trapped in uh, in a family and a cultural rigidity. 
I don't even know if I was a creative back then. I was just a, I was just a, a kid, man. I wanted to run. I want to play with my friends. I wanted to, to play soccer. You have kids and you quit a job at the worldwide yeah. leader in sports well, now, because it's too rigid the way that you're analyzing sports there. To come with us, the creative house of fools, rebels, and artists. Like You made a decision there that runs contrary to almost all of your cultural rigid yeah backing to get here yeah i was supposed to be an engineer i was good at math i was good at physics i'm gonna be an engineer don't like blood and guts don't want to be a doctor can't draw can't be an architect engineer so i went to school to be an engineer fully believing i'm going to be an engineer and i'm going to get a good job when i graduate and georgia tech one of the best engineering schools found that out after i got there <laughs> when i met people who told me their dream was to go to georgia tech and i said i literally saw Stephon Marbury play for me. Like, ah, if he can do it, I could do it. That's that was the extent of my my knowledge, right? And then when I got there, I met those people who not only dreamt of going to Georgia Tech, but dreamt of being engineers. And I'm like, no, no, we're just here because this is something that's gonna get us a good job in life, right? Like, no, my college room, my first roommate took apart our clock radio and put it back together. And I said, why? So oh, it's fun. And I realized, oh shit. It's like it's it's not unlike you know if you were a pretty good basketball player and you kind of liked it or whatever and then one day you showed up to like five star camp or whatever and you saw all these people from around the country who came here because they want to chase their dream of being the best possible basketball player and they're playing they're just messing even when in their off time they're playing and you're like oh I don't do any of that and I knew this might be a problem but I thought I could just fucking fake my way through it. And then get on the other side. Oh, so you knew early that that has to be scary. Like as a like freshman, it, that has to be scary when you don't know what you want to do with your life. No clue. And 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 to make matters worse, I I grew up looking at my dad go to work and hate his job, right? Because and later on he like corrected me, like I didn't always hate my job. I hated it when different people came in charge, and then when I went to the UN, he's like he didn't like it because it was a lot of bureaucracy, and so. But for me, as a kid, I'm processing as people hate working. It's something you just do because if check comes in and you take care of your family with it. But no one, no one loves what they do. I, I just didn't think that was a thing. And then I'm looking, I'm seeing, oh, these people actually love this. Love it. And I'm like, can I do, I can't even get through four years of this shit. Can I do 40 years of it? Probably not. But what else are you going to do? And I'm having this conversation with my parents. My parents are like, what else are you going to do? Like, I don't know. I'm like, well, you gonna you want to drop out? Because that's how they, they're like, they take everything to the extreme. You want to drop out? What? Do you you want to play basketball? Like, you're not good. I like, I know I'm not, <laughs> I go to college. I'm not anywhere near the college <laughs> team. Like, I know I'm not going to be a basketball player. I just don't know what I want to do. And then I got my first job and, and not my first job, my first job in basketball. And that's what changed everything. <laughs> My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. 
the original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So you're going to tell me, because you don't exactly belong or people like Mm -hmm. you don't exactly populate the entirety of the NBA world, you're going to tell me that the first place that you felt in life where you belonged was basketball. Yeah. Yeah. That was was the thing that I could always have a conversation with people about, and I was current on that. Like For whatever reason, I was current on basketball. And I knew basketball. I knew I could have an intelligent conversation about basketball. And all the other stuff was kind of not as important. And so I'm in bed. It's Saturday morning. And my roommate comes in. And he wakes me at 6 a.m. or whatever. He wakes me up. He's like, come on, hey, let's go downtown. The Hawks are hiring. And I told him to go fuck himself because it's Saturday morning in college, which you probably imagine what Friday night was like. So 6 a.m., get out of my room. Just, what are you doing? He said, come on, come on. It'll be, it might be cool, whatever. I said, they're not going to hire us. And he says, well, we got to try. And I said, they're, you know, they're going to be hundreds of people. It's like, well, they, they got to pick somebody. It might be us. And I, I remember thinking to myself, just get the hell out of my room. And then he said the one thing that made me stop. He said, who knows? We might get to go to some games for free. And at that point I was like, going to games would be fun. So I remember the moment of one more time in my brain saying, get out, get out, leave me alone. And then I said, ah, going to games for free. So I got up, we went down there, about 350 people showed up. They hired six, we're two of them. Me Why? and my roommate. Why? I don't, like, I think, in, I don't remember the interview, to be honest with you, but I'm fairly sure I came across as someone who was like, yeah, I know I know basketball. Now, this was for a field marketing position. This is like street team. It is the as entry level as you can get. It was, we had this little carnival type thing that went from mall to mall on the weekends. You set it up on the Friday or Thursday evening, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you break it down on Sunday, and you go. And it's like, hey, make three out of four three-pointers and get tickets to the game. Or, or look how big your hand is compared to, to Kemi Mutombo's hand and the foot size. and all, Like, it's just one of those kind of fan-jammy type things. We just go be at a mall for a weekend. And we did that, and as I'm doing this, I'm meeting people who are full-time employees, and I say, you do this for a living working in basketball for a team. And they're like, yeah. And I said, what'd you go to school for? And they're like, Oh, you know, they take communications, but like they just regular degrees. And I said, like, are you, is your dad, the owner of the team? He said, no. And I, that was my first time knowing that you could work in sports and not be a former athlete or the son or daughter of nepotism. Right. So now I'm like, I like this. So at the end of the year, that first year we get promoted. Now we're in the arena. We're doing the, uh, 
during the timeouts and stuff like yeah, that. Shoot whatever, from here. Shooting seven thousand miles. T-shirts and cannons yeah, into yeah, the. Well, yeah, you are you are part of the entertainment well, street team. Not the not the not those guys. The guys who set up kind of like the shoot from here and you might win a, a trip trip to Maui or whatever. Like right. the, we're doing the logistics of that. So I'm in arena though. So now I'm I'm going to these games for You've free. You've been promoted. Been You've promoted. been promoted from street team to yep. in arena, and your dream has arrived. Free Hawks games. Yes. Yes, free Hawks games. And then you start getting to know people, right? So the first, I tell people this all the time, the first NBA person, true NBA person I knew was Rick Mahorn because I was walking and I was carrying some boxes, and this is pregame, and Rick Mahorn comes in and he knocked the boxes out of my hands and just kept walking. (laughs) Now, did he, he wasn't playing for them. He was, what was was he doing? Assistant coach. He was an assistant coach. Yeah. And he just thought, okay, welcome to our world, kid. Yes. This is how we live around here. Yeah. You are carrying boxes. I'm going to knock them out of your hand wordlessly. Yeah. And I'm 6'10", and one of the bad boys. He's Go Rick ahead Mahorn. and do something about it. Right. He's Rick Mahorn. But he later told me, like, I did that because I knew you could take it. Because I, I, I'd been watching you. I'd seen you. I'd seen how you are. I said, he's, he can take a joke. And so I get to know Rick It's Mah- a funny joke. Oh, it's no, it's great. And it's like, for me, it's like, Rick Mahorn just knocked boxes out of my hands. I like because I knew who he was, and I, so I remember uh, after games, sometimes they would do the, the autograph session, right? And they'd have the tables on the court, and the fans would have to come down the this long aisle and get their stuff autographed. And they wanted Rick to be one of the guys because Rick was at the time the Hawks were terrible. Rick was legitimately one of the most recognizable faces on the team. We just played the Cavs, and I'm standing there making sure like. No fans come rushing from any other angle or whatever. And Paul Silas walks up and slaps, I mean, slaps the ever-living shit, shit out of the back of Rick Mahorn's head. And it's the only time I've ever seen Rick mad. Because he and turned Paul around. Paul Silas was such a badass, though. He thought he, but Rick thought I did it. Oh, my God. And it was fury. It was like, I'm going to kill the kid. He's taking it, too. Because we like I. after a while, now I'm messing with him, too. So I, I think he thought I just said, like, let's one-up this shit. So he turned around with, but that's a Paul Silas hand. Oh my just, god! I'm like, <laughs> and also, come on, man, I'm not an idiot. And he turns out he sees Paul and he starts la- laughing and smiles. Like, oh, you, you it's, it's all fun and games with Paul Silas. That's it. <laughs> so, yeah, because he could kick my ass is what he said. But uh, but yeah, so this is happening, right? And Rick Mahorn said that of Paul Silas. Yeah. Oh, Paul Silas is a bad man. I know he's yeah, a bad man. Yeah. He's as a coach, he stuffed a, a player into a locker. Yeah. I know he's a bad man, but so is Rick Mahorn. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, every everyone every big fish knows when there's a bigger fish, right? So now I'm like, this is what I want to do, and I'm talking to these guys. I talk to a couple of front office guys, kind of what do they do? You know, I'm thinking to myself, this is what I want to do. I want to work in basketball. I want to work in basketball operations. I I'm I know all this stuff. I'm the guy who re- read the CBA for fun. Before there was a Larry Kuhn it's FAQ, before so any weird. of that, right? It's so weird. I want to do this shit. Who reads the CBA for fun? Because I want to understand why you could, why I can trade my favorite player to because of the no, salary. But no, that's also that is also it ties into where your Sudanese cultural rigidity, like clearly there's a curiosity that you had right. that was academic. Yeah, yeah, it was just I just want to understand why. Think because the '99 CBA introduced all these things that were all these all the rules that we now know. You know, mid-level exception and trading those salaries have to match this and that, like all that stuff came out of that one document. And so, I didn't understand, and I wanted to understand. And so now I'm like, okay, I'm going to work in basketball, but I don't know what I'm going to do. I just want to start wherever I can start and get there. So 
I transfer. I go to my parents. I want to do this. And they, they're heartbroken. Like the kid wants to, do you want to, people chasing a ball or whatever. And, and mind you, I'm not a U.S. citizen. So they're like, no one's going to hire you, right? You're not going to have a job. This won't work. This isn't even a real job. Not going to happen. How hard was all of that? It was awful. I mean, it was awful because, I mean, it's not even because of the lack of support. It was just the idea that I, this was the first thing I figured out that I wanted to do. And I, I didn't know anyone who did it. Right. I didn't have any connections. I mean, like I knew Rick and a couple, but I wasn't asking them to work there because I still need to graduate, I thought. So the compromise we hit was my brother was going to school at Arizona State. He's getting his PhD. Um, and so I said, I found out that Arizona State had a really good sports business program that was a graduate program. So I thought to myself, maybe if I graduate from there, I'll have a better chance of getting into that program. So I told my parents, I'll transfer to Arizona State. And for them, it's like, oh, you live with your brother in the same house? That was what sold them. It wasn't anything else. It was just, hey, I'll, I'll transfer there. But the lack of belief must have been crushing to you, given the specifics of, wait a minute, this is the one thing I feel like I've figured out. I've got to go do this. Well, the thing I didn't tell you about was I was awful at Georgia Tech. Like, I was C's and D's, and I was just, because... But you're in over your head. You don't care the way these people right. do. Right. I'm in over my head. I knew I could do the work. But your parents probably thought you were lost at that point, that you were a wayward child. He's, his GPA is like 1.7. Is and he partying? What's he doing? Busy part, like, they not figuring. And again, like, if you tell them, but, but I, I don't like it. It's boring. It's like, what do you think life is as an adult? And they're right, you know, to an extent. But I would say they aren't, right? Because my story has some similarities and everything we've built here, like the symbolism of everything we're talking about, the reason I wanted to talk to you about this, because people hear plenty from you in our universe, is because I want them to understand what the spiritual nature of this company is, that this entire thing that we're building is to build dreams for people like you who follow that particular thing against the constructs of their patterns of their past of their roots like i felt like i mean you didn't ask me a fucking question dude that you've got kids you just jumped yeah and that matters to me because i recognize the pieces of your story my father didn't want me to do any of this my father didn't think there was any money in this my father wanted me to be an engineer at georgia tech i turned down the georgia tech scholarship yeah because i had the same reaction where they couldn't understand. It's what they wanted for me. And I also saw a man in an engineering job who went to work every day and didn't totally love his work. But and I remember talking to my dad. My mother tells this story all the time. I remember sitting at a table at dinner with him and I was asked, what is it that I want to do? And I'm like, I want to make a lot of money and enjoy what I'm doing. And my father spit. Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, that's, but it, but Dan, on some level, they're right. Because we're not, it's not like, hey, if we do this, 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 your dreams can come true. There's a whole amount of luck and, and, you know, we're the exception in that way. I don't know if I could tell my son to chase the same path that you chose or that I chose. If I had a child, I don't think I could, even having seen it work out, I don't think it's the prudent path. It's just the more joyous one. For my children, I've adjusted and I say, you can be whatever you want. But just know every single job is hard and you got to work at it. 
because I, I I want them to understand. If you want to do this, for instance, okay, you better know yourself. My oldest said, oh, I want to be a basketball player when I grow up. All right, okay. But when I'm watching basketball, you don't sit and watch with me. Okay, uh, can you name five players off the Suns? No? Okay, all right. Well, let's go play. Oh, you don't play that often. You play every once in a while. So I said, so what part of this do you want to do? Because if you really want to do it, you got to be 10 toes deep in it. You have to be in it, in it, in it. And you're not. You're just kind of thinking, oh, that would be nice. So th- that's the most I can I can do as far as giving them a universe to be whatever they want to be. It's within the context of it's extremely hard and you got to work at it. And I think in a weird way, me being ignorant of those odds, I knew they were long. I just didn't know exactly how long until I sit back so and think like, oh, my so God. So long. It's not just that. It's that literally, I mean, I, I might be able to make the argument that no one who looks like you has ever been working in any of these franchises at this point. Like there couldn't have oh. been much. There couldn't have been much, right? At this time, you might, you must have been in terms of looking around the room and seeing anybody in the league who looked like you. Was there anybody? No, 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 no. I'll, look, there was. I'm the first, and for the long time, I was the only Sudanese person working in the NBA, other than Manute Bowl and Luol Deng. Those are the other like players. But in terms of non-players, I was the only one. For, now there's one, at least one I know of. I know him is uh, he works for the Warriors now. But for the longest time, I mean, there's nobody I can turn to, right? I can't pick up a phone and say, hey, man, how did you handle this? Or what, what do I do here? Everything I was doing was I was the first of my kind to do any of it. So I go to Arizona State, and now I'm hyper-focused. I, I transfer I, I business school. Their business school was pretty good. I got in, and my GPA is like through the roof. I, I graduate summa cum laude. And it wasn't hard. First of all, like it was just easy. Second of all, it was because everything was like, I need to be this so I can get to this. So right before I graduate, I, I got, I'm subscribed to this mailing list and it's always jobs and sports. And it'll always be like ticket sales intern for the Utah jazz in the summertime unpaid. And I'm like, that's not something I can do. Maybe some people have the means to be able to go move to a town. They don't ha- know anybody in and, and work for free, but I'm not. And I finally, it was always a shitty job. And then one time it was basketball, basketball ops, internship, New York Knicks. And I'm like, well, I got family in New York. I could live at home with them. And it's paid. It's not paid a lot, but it's paid a little bit that'll cover your travel, your, like your, your Metro card and maybe lunch, right? So I'm like, I can get by on one meal a day. <laughs> and so I applied. And uh, I get a call back and we do a phone interview. And then I did well on the phone interview. And then they they said, can you come to New York? And I said, yes, I'm actually going to be there this time, whatever. And so I went in in person. I got the job. I later found out that was the first time they ever posted that position there. They'd always hired from St. John's, NYU, the locals, right? But they said, ah, let's open it up and see what we get. And they told me what we liked about you was that you had prior ex- experience working in the NBA, even though it wasn't in basketball ops, but that we knew that you weren't going to be like, oh my God, it's Isaiah Thomas. Can I have you? I wasn't going to geek out like that. And also, I guess like when I was talking, I sounded more knowledgeable than most of the, the people I had because I had an idea of what I wanted to do. So I start working there. I grew up a Nick fan. And in my mind, the wildest fantasy. 
I got the job with the Knicks. I'm still not getting paid, so I'm not doing a victory lap yet, but in my mind, this is it. I'm going to wow them with my internship. Then I'm going to get hired. I'll move up the ranks, and then I'm going to be the one who saves the Knicks, and I'm going to be a god in New York City, right? <laughs> Fully believe that. And I got there, and probably like two weeks what, in. What I, were you, the president, the GM? What were you rising up to? What was the? What was the? Well, I never thought I was going to be a GM. I never thought but I was, you were going to save the Knicks. I was going to save some the lesser Knicks. position. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, it's, like, my whole plan was like, I'll be an assistant GM one day. You know why, Dan? I thought that was because I said there's never going to be a person with a funny name who's going to be the GM of a team. They'll never do it. A Muslim president of the team? <laughs> That'll be the. I told myself that, and I basically told myself there's only 30 of those jobs right but there are a lot more of the guys lieutenants i could be a hell of a lieutenant so that's what i was gunning for two weeks in i realized ain't gonna happen not because i'm not good enough but because i saw how the organization worked and i was like oh this is it's an organization run by by fear everyone's afraid of you talking hushed tones and stuff because you don't want them to hear because then you'll get They'll get you out of here, right? The computer, like the Sudanese airport. Oh, it was it's <laughs> all over again, all over again. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, it was, and it was. I wasn't. Even, I went, some some of the stuff we we're talking about wasn't even critical. It was just like you know. If, I think if we we could be a better thing. Oh, don't say that. Can't acknowledge that we could be better at anything, right? So everyone's kind of walking on eggshells there, and the work I'm doing is while in proximity to people, is not fulfilling. It's can you FedEx this stuff out? Can you pick up this package? And it's not that I didn't like doing it or I was like, oh my God, this again. It was just like, I'm doing this. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad I'm doing it. But like, I know I can do more. Because outside of that, there was long stretches where I was doing nothing. So I literally started basketball reference. I started looking it up out of boredom. Just looking up. Oh, who's average this? Oh, where did his own so They just it became like uh, just something I did every day. And then you go to games and you, and you work the games or whatever. Uh, even that, every time I would do something, like about, I'd say, hey, I want to work the game. They're like, really? Why? I'm like, because I work for a basketball team. Why would I like go home at the end of the day and we have a game? So all those things kind of made people, I guess, look at me like a curiosity. So this happens for a couple of months and then the trade deadline comes up. And one of the, Big wigs in the office is a guy named Frank Murphy. Frank Murphy was the first capologist in the NBA. About 70% of the weird rules in the salary cap now are because Frank Murphy was doing stuff, funny math kind of stuff, and the league wanted to get rid of all of it, right? Balloon payments and all that stuff was, was him. So he was also the meanest guy in the office. Nobody liked him. So like, oh, he's a jerk. Don't even acknowledge him. So I was like, I say good morning every day. Good morning, Mr. Murphy. Wouldn't even make eye contact. Just kept up. I kept doing it every single day. Trade deadline comes up, and they're like, "All right, you know." And the day, all right, I mean, you go. I'm like, "No, I want to be here. We're sitting in a war room while we're doing trades. I want, I want to see what this thing looks like." So I'm sitting there, and there's a lot of waiting on the trade deadline. There's just a lot of nothing much going on. So Frank's telling these stories, old stories about Charles Oakley. Came upstairs and money, man, if it ain't broke, don't break it. And like a lot of these like NBA lexicon moments, like he was there for. So I'm like sitting there and rap, right? But everybody else in the room has heard it a hundred times. So they're just like, oh, here it goes. Another story, whatever. So the next day I see him in the office. Hey, good morning, Mr. Murphy. And he looks at me and he nods. And I'm like, oh, got him. So the next day I say, good morning. And he says, come to my office at three o'clock. You'll have 15 minutes to ask me whatever you want. 
And I sat there for an hour and a half with him as we went through everything. Tanking, why teams don't tank. I said, oh, you know, because I was like, they should just tank and then they'll get a high pick. And he pulled out this book that had basically all the numbers. Oh, but he saw that you, he saw that you cared. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but he saw that you cared, cared, like the way yeah. that you needed to care. Yes. That he wasn't seeing anywhere else around him. Yes, yes. So he sat there and he showed me, these are the revenues. I think it was Denver that year was pretty bad. It's like, look at Denver's home revenue right now per game. So you're asking them to turn away money right now and the hopes of a ping pong ball is going to end up. It's like, that sounds like a great idea. If you did it, you wouldn't be there to watch it work out. Like someone else would, would benefit. So he's explaining all these salary cap things to me. His assistant at the time was a guy named Matt Simon. Matt Simon was the one that gave me the book Basketball on Paper. He said, if you want to like carve out a niche in this industry, this is where it's going. Read this, like learn about possessions. Like everything's about possessions. Some teams play slow, some teams play fast. Why do we say that the fast team scored scores a lot of more points because they have a lot of possessions? Why do we call them a good offensive team? No, they're just playing fast. The slow team, same thing. We just hold the ball. If I hold the ball, it'll end up being 4-2 or whatever as a final score. That doesn't make me a good defensive team either. So per possessions. Again, this was nowhere. No one was talking about this stuff other than Dean Oliver who wrote this book and uh, John Hollinger who was doing uh, that stuff for ESPN.com. Right. But he, was, I, John, he wasn't even there yet. He wasn't even there yet. So I'm learning this. I'm learning that. I'm getting a little bit more. So now they pull me from the intern seated area and they put me in this office next to Dickie McGuire. Dickie McGuire played for the Knicks a million years ago. And then he was like a, a coach, but he wasn't good at it. And Red Holtzman was a scout, but he wasn't good at it. And then they flip-flopped. and like, oh, this is much better. So Dickie became like the front office guy. Red Holtzman obviously became the great coach. And so Dickie would write scouting reports. Now he's like 70 or 80 or whatever he is. He'd write scouting reports, but they wanted to put it in the system. And he's like, I'm not touching a computer. <laughs> so they put me in his office and they gave me a stack of his shit and just like enter these scouting reports. That's so the now, job. <laughs> now I'm reading what he has to say about all these players. And while it's mundane work and meticulous and awful, you're also learning. But no, now it's not mundane. Now it's not meticulous because it's not FedExing him his, his pay stub. Or, you know. No, but now it's, it, right. It's now, tapped it, you've tapped into a vein of curiosity. Yeah, there you go. Like, I'm like, oh, I've great. got secret papers. I've got secret papers. I get to read with, and now, and now I'm at, he comes in every once in a while on the road to open his mail or whatever. And I say, hey, can I ask you a question? Um, why are your scouting reports so short? Reports so short? He's like, what do you mean? I said, like, he'll, his scouting reports will literally be like, pretty decent athlete, likes to get to his left, needs to get better at shooting, possible second round pick. He's talking about this like lottery people. Like, you just kill him. And and then the shortest one he ever wrote was CNP, cannot play. That was that. That's like if he wrote that, that means like you're just done, right? So I asked him like, why are they so short? He said, kid, we all know who can play and who can't play. Anything more you put on that paper is just to cover your ass in case you're wrong. So it was like it was a great life lesson, right? So one of the things I've been doing, I start watching video of our guys, right? Jamal Crawford was on the team, and so I did this little pet project of my own I'm, I'm bored i'm gonna count how many what his field goal percentage is by the dribble so catch and shoot he shoots this one dribble it goes down and then two dribbles it goes really down and my whole thing was like the more he dribbles the worse he gets into and so i've got this sitting out there while i'm doing the reports and dickie comes in and he looks at it and he's like you did this and i said yeah he says why i was just bored he's like 
what are you doing here? He literally asked me what I'm doing here. Why aren't you doing something real? Like, why are you wasting your time with basketball? This is a man like who's given his whole life to work in basketball. I was like, man, because I love it, man. I want to be there. This is what I want to do. And so these are kind of like the names and the faces I'm seeing. And I'm like, I'm starting to win people over. Isaiah Thomas is the president. And I don't have a whole lot of interactions. But whenever I do, it's always positive. I know he knows who I am. So I'm like, this is going to happen. I'm going to get hired here. It's going to be an uphill battle because it's the Knicks. Because now I know what ownership is doing here and how hard it is. But as the year wears on, I begin to realize it ain't going to happen, bro. They don't have any real estate. There's not even a place where I could sit. They Eventually, my seat is going to be turned over to the next level, next wave of interns. So that's when I say, okay, maybe I look at that grad school thing again. And then I went back to Arizona. And while I was there, now I'm like, now I'm a machine. Because I'm like, look, I just worked for a year in the NBA. I know, I know this in basketball ops I know this shit now and I'm not taking no for an answer and so I just started hitting up the Suns and the summer between my first and second year in grad school I was supposed to be the intern for the Suns and they hit me and said sorry oh, gave it to somebody else like what happened oh, they gave it to the nephew of one of the part owners this nephew was a high school senior I'm in grad school I just worked I four years of NBA working experience one in basketball ops and they gave it to a high school senior. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Well, let's end on that note. You will hear Amin, a lot from Amin, over the course of the growth of Metal Arc Media. But one of the things that I did want to do here is introduce you sort of to how people got here and why they got here. And you are now working for the culmination of all of that. And I feel like because Amin cares like that, I believe that this company will get Amin's best work for as long as we're lucky enough to have him around here. So Amin, thank you for all you've done for us over the years. And I'm really looking forward to this next stage of your career because I did want people to sort of understand how you got here and who you are, because it's an important part of everyone that seems to be lured here these days. I mean, in the reasons they seem to be lured here, because you've seen some similarities between our Cuban exile story here in the shipping container and with my family to your own story in Sudan, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, some of the things when you talk about it, I hear people listen with empathy, but they it's, there's an ignorance there. They don't really know what you're talking about. Particularly when you talk about your mother and her family leaving. And I, I listen to those stories and I know exactly what those stories are about. I know exactly, not because I'm Cuban or I lived in Cuba, but because it's a similar thing. This idea of government that it, 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 it exists to oppress and nothing else. And it's a very blunt oppression. It's not like the subtle oppression of that we have in this country, for instance, where they kind of want the machine still working, right? This is uh, 
you know, in Sudan, then under the old government, if you had a, a good idea, you started a business and it was doing well, they would come in like the mob and they take it. Like, all right, we're going to do it now. Or you're going to pay us uh, a certain amount. And even then they just milk you until you had nothing left. And that was it. And so that pushes a level of, uh, I guess, I won't say poverty, but it pushes everybody down. And I don't want to make it seem like I grew up poor. My father was a civil servant, so we did okay. But there are things that I think about now that are like, really? I, like, I have one pair of shoes, right? Like, and those are the nice shoes, right? You didn't do anything with them to make them dirty or, or because you never knew when the next pair was going to come. So I used to play barefoot, soccer, basketball. I used to play barefoot. And I, right now on my left foot, I have a scar from like me kicking a soccer ball and there being a broken bottle there and just pff, gush blood. And so I have to go and get stitches in my left foot. That was the norm. That wasn't that wasn't something out of the ordinary. And I don't want to say I like I repress these memories, but there are lots of I just don't think about until I think about it. And I'm like, Jesus, was I really doing that? But that was it. Like we used to have one meal a day. Like breakfast was like people would drink tea, right? I wasn't much of a tea drinker, right? Lunch was the biggest meal of the day. That was you'd have an actual lunch. And then dinner was an optional thing. If you want to drink a glass of milk, that was dinner. And that was it. And but I, I never think about I was really technically eating one meal a day for for about seven or eight years or whatever it was. So there's a bunch of stuff like that where I think things that people take for granted and even I take for granted. Uh, but is the norm. It's literally the norm. Power outages. I'm talking about months at a time. Turn on a water faucet. It comes out brown. I didn't know that malaria was like a weird disease. I thought it was like catching, like, oh, he got the flu. I, I caught malaria when I was a kid. When, remember, during the beginning of COVID, they talk about chloroquine, and everyone's like, oh, what is this thing? I'm like, I know what that is. That's what they gave me when I got malaria. It's 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 because quinine is too strong, so they cut it with, with a chlorine, I guess, whatever, and you get chloroquine in these pills or in shots. And so that was, to me, that was just the norm. That now I think about it, like I had malaria so walking around like this is like a, a crazy ass disease but that was just that's life bullheartia and um I, all these weird diseases that again only exist in the backwaters of the world that are all but eradicated in regular society that was that was like a thing that you have to like, oh you don't want to get guardia now watch out don't don't just drink from any any cup right. Through it all, like you just don't know what you don't know. So you're just like, oh, this is it. I I thought when I I reached a point in Sudan, I didn't know I was coming back. I thought I was it. I got ready to live in Sudan for the rest of my life. I knew what college I was going to go to. I knew what I was going to major in. And, you know, I was like, you know, be decent or whatever. I Like I didn't even consider that we're going to leave the country because to leave the country, you needed an exit visa. I've heard of entry visas, right? Exit visa. In order to leave the country, you got to ask permission from the government. And that's not another thing like, oh, I go into the airport and they just pay them and they, they stand. No, no. You got to go to this thing and you got to fill out this form and go to this window. And then that window, you got to take it to another window. And you're talking about long lines and you're talking about uh, waiting all day long. And then the guy at the window says, I'm done for the day. And now you got to come back tomorrow and do it. It's just crazy stuff. Crazy. Stuff. There was, um, we had to do uh, compulsory basic training. That, that was actually the reason why my brother left first because he didn't want to do the compulsory basic training. He went to college in Egypt to get out of it. 
But I'm headed towards it. I'm like, well, I guess I got to do it where I'm going to like learn how to shoot a gun and uh, get my head shaved and all this stuff. I didn't, I just thought like, that's what's going to happen. You're looking, you're almost looking forward to it. And, and by the way, when you're in this national defense force, they can send you to war if they want. Well, and you're not learning to question anything. No, no. I mean, you might question, but you don't say that out loud, which again, I don't know how well I would have done in that circumstance being somewhere where I'm not allowed to ask the question out loud. I would have been, it would have been horrible, but ultimately it's, you know, you know it's wrong, but you don't see any other choice, right? I'm talking about going to war because we're going through a civil war where the southern, mostly non-Muslim population uh, is fighting for freedom and the government is trying to impose Sharia law and all that stuff, which, by the way, it's not like any of us, us in the North were crazy about it either. But at least I could understand it because it's based on our religion, air quotes on based. For the people in the South, I just thought that was awful. Like, why are you making them, holding them to the your standards, your quote-unquote standards, because it's all fictitious. It's still just an instrument to exploit people with. It has nothing to do with actual religion. And the proof of that is they started a, another thing in the West, where they're in Darfur. And those people all were Muslims. But they figured out another way to villainize and demonize them and terrorize those people. And uh, the thing I'll say is this. Two years ago when we had our revolution in Sudan and these people were overthrown, in the middle of it, what happened was they brought the militias that were terrorizing the Western Sudan. They brought them to Khartoum to go up against the protesters. And it was it was a bloodbath. These are peaceful protesters. Nobody armed, nobody throwing rocks or anything. And they just released this militia that's literally killing and pillaging and raping with no zero controls, right? And I remember being with Sudanese friends here and I started crying and they said, it's okay, you know, like people are going to get through it, whatever. I'm like, no, I just feel so guilty because we knew that shit was happening in the West and we heard about it and we knew it was happening, we knew it was wrong, but I didn't know what that looked like. And I said, now I know what it looked like and I just felt super fucking guilty, right? Forget about me not being in Sudan. There was that level of guilt. There. But you always feel like you're not doing enough. In as it regards to Sudan, you always yeah. feel like you're not doing enough. Yeah, I do. Uh because I have a complicated relationship. That's what I've I've come to realize. I don't do enough, but part of the reason why I feel like that intensely is because I know I have a complicated relationship because a lot of my memories of Sudan are being there and being called Khawaja. Khawaja means someone from somewhere else. Or like, as you, because I didn't speak Arabic. And then when I start speaking Arabic, and even as I become fluent, then it turns into, uh, I mean, the Sudani. He's not really Sudanese. Not really. Like, it's, it's kind of almost like a, like a hood pass. Like, oh, he's not, not really black. You know that one? Like, he's not really Sudanese. Why? Well, because, you know, he grew up in America. And there was a lot of stuff, like, or, you know, even as I learned Arabic and became fluent, Arabic is like Spanish. It's one of those uh, languages where uh, everything has a gender, Right. Every, everything in Spanish has a gender. It is your mm-hmm. hand, a, yeah. a bottle, whatever. Mm-hmm. Same thing in Arabic. But sometimes you fuck it up because it's your second language, right? And in Sudan, like a very common thing is for people to make fun of that. Oh, he called it the L bottle instead of the La bottle. Oh, he's so dumb. And and, and it frustrates me because like I'm, I'm trying here. This is my second language. But I don't do that shit when you fuck up English, do I? Right? 
And so there's a lot of kind of repressed anger about Sudan that I have and about Sudanese mentalities about stuff. Cause I think about, especially when I broke into the whole basketball thing, the thing that told me that couldn't be done. I was like, yeah, that's right. Cause you fucking all think in, in a box and you go, you all, all you guys do is follow like lemmings and you don't reward people who strike out, right? Try and do something different. And those were things I went through a, a bad time when I was just like very disdainful of everything Sudanese. It's backward and, and repressed and just you guys don't know anything. And that's why we're nowhere as a country. That's why we don't have entrepreneurs who are, you know, billionaires or whatever, like many other third world countries. Um, and over time I realized I was wrong. We do have those things. Um, but it's just, we don't, they're not championed in the same way that, um, so-and-so got a job with Schlumberger as an engineer. So-and-so is a doctor and he actually works at NYU hospital. Like th those are the things that are like the success stories, uh, which again, I learned later is more common among all immigrants than it is just mine. I, one of my favorite tweets that I've ever done was, it was a picture of Joel Embiid's dad during the playoffs. And he just had like this stone face. And I said something along the lines of like, he looks like he's about to tell Joel, hey, why can't you be more like your cousin John, who, by the way, got a very good job at Boeing, right? Like, it's, that's what, but that's a very immigrant thing, right? Um, of the stability and looking for the things that will find us prosperity and uh, sustained prosperity, as opposed to kind of some of this crazy shit that we're doing here. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.